You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone and welcome back to Page to Stage, a conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. That's Mary. To put it simply, we're both theater nerds. So let's pull back the curtain and get a glimpse at the artist's process while creating their art. Hey Jeff. Hi Brian. Thanks for joining us. Thanks Mary. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be had. Yeah. So Let's talk about writing. Okay. <laughs> well, first, yes, we were really interested to know, what do you consider yourself as a theater maker? Uh, if people ask me now, uh, I generally lead with writer. I've been an actor for over 20 years. I've been an actor for a long time. Um, but I self-identify more as a writer than an actor, although I earn about half my income from each. So it just depends on the year. Last year was a really good year for both. The front half was all writing and the back half was all acting. This year, uh, so far, it, I've been writing, but it's not anything that's paying me. And, mm. and in the back half of the year, I already have jobs lined up as an actor. So, But what I think when I wake up in the morning is what I'm going to write today, not how am I going to interact with the world as an actor. Oh, that's really interesting. Do you write, like, would you say that you write, like, first thing in the morning or is it just a thought that you have? I'm a nine to fiver, kind of. Like, I, I treat it like an office job. I get up. I usually, uh, I usually walk three to five miles to get myself going. I sit down at my desk somewhere probably, but by 10 or 11 and when I sit down I try to start working but I'm also looking out the window or looking at the internet or whatever but I try to turn off the TV and like sit down to work and uh, and by 3, 4 in the afternoon whatever's happened I usually am done writing for the day usually if something's really cooking I'm you know I might keep going but there's uh, I mean I think this is true for most writers but there's a there's a period of time where it's all happening and you can't sustain that. No writer can sustain that with quality mm-hmm. beyond, I think, 90 minutes to three hours, depending on how fast you're cooking. Because if you're writing past... I was just listening to a podcast the other day of two film writers that I like a lot, and they were talking about this exact same thing. And 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 one of them said, it's all writing. Like, I'm walking, I'm thinking, I spend my day... I think I think of it all as writing, but, when I, but actually hands on keyboard, anything more than three hours... For almost any writer, your that, brain, yeah, yeah, the, you know, it it's might like still be happening, for... but it's crap, probably. And do you write on paper or do you? No, no. Okay, I, I, I just wonder. I rewrite on paper, and I, and my first draft is always because I type faster than I can write. I type like mm. 100, 110 words a minute, so I can, I can actually keep up with my thoughts. If I'm, if I'm writing longhand, I can't. But that's why I rewrite by hand usually, because then it forces me to stop and think. Yeah. So how do you handle writer's block? Do you... Because I took a playwriting class in grad school and he told us to just keep writing even if what you were writing was I don't know what to write next or I don't know what to think. I had like a creative writing class as well and that's exactly what they told us to write. And I will just keep writing. I do not know what I'm writing over and over. Yeah, But I I don't consider myself a writer. I recognize that advice. I don't find that to be true for me. I also, there are some writers who say writer's block doesn't exist. Like that's a, you know, that's a, that's a phrase that just, and I actually agree with some version of this definition. That's just a phrase that means I'm afraid, Hmm. you know, like today I'm afraid. I suffer that more. um, There are like three stages if I'm writing a play or, or, or something for film or television. But if I'm writing something from scratch, the first third of it is all writer's block. It's all I'm afraid because it isn't anything yet. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, it's 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 just torture to sit down because there's nothing there. Like, I may have an outline. I may know what I want it to eventually be, but there's nothing. It's page one. So every day is just like, well, if I can just get like three pages today or, you know, like five lines that I think are usable, that's good because I'm still, it's still teaching me what it is because particularly play, since you're talking about theater on on the podcast particularly plays we're, we're interested in both so yeah i mean but i mean it's yeah i i approach them all the same some screenwriters because i've written some stuff that that for, for for film and television but it's all it's all the same process the first third of it is so unknowable it's a new language like some writers everything they write is some version of the same thing 
You know, like yeah. like like David Mamet or some people's voice as a writer. He, he's not the best example today, but but he's a very identifiable example because his plays all seem like the same play. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that makes me complicated as a writer, particularly for an agent to represent, for somebody to tell other people about my work. Like a brand. That's right. All of my plays are very different from each other. I know what my voice sounds like on the page. And if you look at my plays... They have a similar look. They, they, there's a way that a cutoff looks in my play. There's a way a lot of my lines end in dashes because my plays, uh, people don't finish their thoughts a lot because that's how the world sounds to me. But the plays themselves are wildly different. Like uh, uh, some of my contemporary plays have some similarities in terms, especially if I'm writing about an age group, if I'm writing about 20-somethings, they may sound similar. But this, I just finished a draft this week of something it said in 1882 in Norway. It, on the page, to me, it looks like all of my other plays, but I know that it doesn't sound like them. And it's very hard to say, well, Jeff's new play is set in the 19th century in Norway. It's just like a play he wrote last yeah. year that's set in the near future um, that was produced, a play I had last year was produced that's set in the near future. I think they're very similar, but they're like, have a 300-year gap between them, these two plays. So... Voice for me means that I'm trying to answer for me what the story is trying to tell me to do. Other writers, I think, try to put their voice on whatever the story is. So my plays tend to be very different from each other because what I become interested in is a question. Like the thing that always starts me is, well, I wonder what, what, I have a question about this. I don't know what this is in the world. I don't know, I don't know what anything about what that means to me. And the way I answer that question or approach that question is to write about it. And hopefully by the end, rather than answer it, I've reframed the question for an audience and their job is to go and talk about it. Ooh. Oh, that's interesting. Because I, so I just, I just finished reading the submission. Oh, yes. And so I actually felt that. Yeah. I felt that exactly the way that, that you ended it. And I won't, I won't give it away for yeah. anyone who's listening who wants to read it because it's a journey. I took a it whole is. journey with it. It's with a ride. Me. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I was fascinated, but I had a question about. So you 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 start with a question, yes. and that's how you start. Yeah. Do you do you start with characters in mind, or do you start with no, the story I mean, and usually build the characters like, to frame your story? Like the submission started because I had some questions. I mean, I think that that there are a couple of major questions that that play is asking that have to do with so not many just, layers. Yeah, but yeah. it isn't just. I, I think one of the plays, one of the reasons that play is complicated for people. Um, is because it's a very aggressive play and has a lot of really forceful language and it's kind of an assault. The play is kind of an assault. They end up walking away and thinking that's about that's about the fight between gender, sexual identity, and racial identity. To me, that play, the question I wanted to write about was who gets to tell the story. That's what the play's about to me. But that isn't necessarily what other people take away. So when I say that I sit down because I have a question about a thing, it may not be the same question other people have when the play is over, but I think the job of a dramatist, at least the kind of drama that I like, is once the, once the play is over, once your experience is over, I want to ask questions that you go out into the lobby and talk about. And like, what do you think about this? What did you, what, 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 what did you draw from that experience, other audience member? And, and it's okay with me if people disagree about what that experience was. There are other playwrights, I think, who want you to walk away with what and, they and yeah, that's right. Want like you to feel what their what their answer to things is. And I often think I failed giving you their insight. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think for my for my money, I've failed if you walk away and know exactly what I think about it. So like the submission is a great example. Like one of and 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 again, it was my first play. I'm now. It was your first play? It was my first completed full-length play. Oh, wow. I had written a couple of one-hours. I had written a play with a friend. But that was the first That was the first completed all-by-myself play. I'm now 11 plays and four musicals in. And I write differently now. So that play, which I'm proud of and has had a really great life, I saw a production of it a year ago at NYU. And... And I try not, I don't see that play so much anymore. That play's really uncomfortable for me to watch because I know what it's going to do to an audience. So it's hard because a lot of my plays are very tough on an audience. A lot of my plays have an uncomfortable feeling to them. But because I've seen that one enough, I'm like, I know what's going to happen to these poor people when this play is over and it's not comfortable for me. I'm proud that it does that, but... I often think that theater is meant to make people uncomfortable and 
but also have audience members, creative team, actors walk away with polarizing opinions or thoughts from it. So I, I think totally that agree. That- Not all theater, right? Like, like some theater is there to help you um, Co- let go of your something. day. Yeah. Okay, right. sure. You know, yeah. and and uh, that is just. That is not my interest when I sit down to write, for the most part. I All of my plays aren't assaults, either. Like, a lot of my plays, <laughs> some of my plays, they're all kind of about, you know, sad people, I think. Or people... Uh, people or with challenges. The, I think yes. they're, they're, they're the more interesting people to probably write about. I don't well, know. To what me, you say? Yeah. I mean, that's why I write what I write. Other people write different things. Other people are, uh, I think, much more comforted by the world. I'm pretty uncomfortable with the world. <laughs> By and large, I mean, I'm a fairly friendly guy, but I'm also like aware of the weight of life on people. And I try to uh, honor those people and write about people who are who are in the middle of uh, of the thunderstorm of life. Yeah. Would you say that you take what's going on in the world as a lot of your inspiration for when you sit down to write something? I take I take what is happening to me in the world, you mm-hmm. know, um, I. I'm not a I'm not a documentarian and again some 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 makers really are I'm not I really hope each time that I write something that it is a ride of some sort for an audience because the kind of theater I like best is when it's over I'm like whoa I mean I feel like so many things happened to me in the last 90 minutes 2 hours 2 and a half hours you know that's just the kind of theater I like I think writers write what they like what they like to see yeah. And I think I think the writers who are less authentic, le- voices that are less authentic, are writers who don't honor that. You know, and there's some really exciting writers working right now who really are challenging audiences. You know, it's uh, as, as theater currently is seeking out, you know, much a much wider pool of voices to talk about their experience, yeah. some of those voices have some pretty challenging things to position in front of an audience. That's right. Or if we have heard, we haven't heard it from the perspective of of those particular writers or people within that story who exist within that, who within the community. That's right. Exist within the community. Um, And there have been, like this season, there have been some really in-your-face plays. Um, Slave play comes to mind. There was a play that just closed at Lincoln Center called Mary Seacole by uh, by the playwright who won the Pulitzer for her play Fairview. Fairview is a very challenging play. And I don't mean challenging in a negative sense at all, you know. But for some people, it feels negative. Some people don't. It's not just a night of. That's not what they want. Entertainment. That's right. That's right. It's just not what I sit. It's not what I write. You know. It's not. And and every I've turned over plays to directors or theaters before, and I say, well, when I started, I thought it was going to be a comedy. But they just never turn out that way for me. <laughs> they, I think there are laughs in my plays. Yeah. But but when they start, when I usually when I start, I'm like, this one's going to be a comedy. I'm going to write a comedy. <laughs> and by the so end, funny. like a baby is like maybe about to die, or like like terrible things are about <laughs> to happen. And it's not because that's what I set out to do, but it's what happens when I sit down to write. So. What did you originally go to undergrad for? I I, uh, I went to undergrad for acting, got a BFA in acting, and I acted for many many years solely. I acted for nine years in Chicago, and then was accepted into the Yale School of Drama as an actor, and went to Yale. And while I was at Yale, I started writing. Yale is a really immersive acting program. I think I did thirty six plays in three years as an actor. You're wow. just always wow. acting. It's part of the Yale aesthetic. You're always in multiple things. But there's a completely student-run theater at Yale that has no faculty oversight whatsoever. It's called the Yale Cabaret. It's been there for decades. It produces at night on the weekends after 11 p.m. It rehearses at night after all classes and rehearsals are over after 11 p.m. And I wrote a couple of plays. And there, everything in there is like 60 to 65 minutes at the cabaret. And I wrote a couple of things that were produced by the cabaret. I had, I think if I had been brave, I've, I've answered this question uh, to many people the same way. So if anybody is listening that's ever heard me talk, I say this a lot, but it's true. I, I think if I had been brave from the beginning, I wouldn't have been an actor at all. I would have been a writer. And I've had, continue to have, a successful career as an actor. And and people who really appreciate what I do as an actor. And, and sometimes I'm one of them. Like sometimes I think, oh yeah, I was kind of awesome in that. But I was afraid to be a writer. I did in undergrad take one playwriting class. And my memory of it is that that teacher was very unsupportive. And I just recently, and by recently I mean in the last year, was cleaning out things in my mother's home and found 
plays, like 10-minute, 7-minute, 5-minute plays I wrote for that class. And he actually was supportive. But he, but he did say to me then, and it's in writing and some of those things, like, you don't, you don't approach plays, you don't approach your writing the way other writers working today do. I think it will be hard for you. And I took that as disencouragement wow. and, and was like, well, I, you know, I'll just stick with acting because that's also an impossible career. But at least there are, yeah. you know, more actors in a play than a playwright. I would think that he would have taken it the opposite way and said, we need your he voice. He was 81 years old. Okay, there you go. <laughs> you know, there you go. Yeah, he'd been yeah. at it for I many, mean, many years. Yeah. And I think he thought he was doing me a kindness. Yeah, sa- um, saving you. Yeah, and I was also like a scared person, yeah. like a lot of people are. And it, and it was just enough. Look, if I talk to a room full of people as, a, as like an acting mentor brought in, I'm one of those people who will lay out how difficult the career is because all careers in the arts are difficult and they come laced with pain. Because it's a difficult lifestyle unless you are miraculously lucky. But it's a hard lifestyle. That's just part and parcel with it. I do think the rewards are great if you really want to do it. But I think it's important to lay out. If, if you scare somebody enough early on, then they probably didn't have the metal to do it anyway because it's hard. And definitely as a writer, he scared me enough. that, And I didn't have the metal for it then. And, and I kind of put it aside but it was always going on in the back of my head I always wanted to do it and when I got to grad school I was like well here's a playground I can play a little bit and and a couple of my plays got produced they went over very very well there and still I was pretty afraid of it and got out of acting grad school from the Yale School of Drama which opened a lot of doors and was super helpful for me and hit the ground running as an actor and then just quietly wrote in the background but then I wrote this play that became the submission. It was actually called something else in early drafts, but it was. But I wrote this play that I started sending around, and people got interested in it. And and some very lucky things happened that never happened. Like a theater found it in a pile. The guy who was in charge of picking plays found it. His name's Stephen Willems. He found it. He believed in it. He called me. And he said, "I really like this play. I want to show it to my artistic directors." Will you, would you take some notes and rewrite? And I was like, sure. And he gave me some notes and I rewrote. We presented it to his artistic directors. They all believed in it. They submitted it for a brand new award that hadn't existed before then. And I won it. And wow. that award gave me a lot of money and it gave them even more money to produce the play. And they produced the play off Broadway. And then it won another big award. So I got, and the money was super helpful. That was really, it was really, it, I hate awards, but it's nice to win them. <laughs> but I do don't, I really deeply dislike setting it. artists against each other. But when you win them, momentarily, it feels really great. <laughs> but, but more so for me, what it did was give me a permission slip to do something that I had been afraid of. You know, I got some money, which helped for a little bit, but money goes away. Sure. But I got like a little like check mark from the universe saying, if you want to do this, you might be okay at it. And I sat down every day from then on and wrote. And from then on, and this is now, that would be 2010, nine years ago, I write every day. And it's because I got a little permission slip from the universe. You know, if it was a permission slip I could have given myself, which I think is more important for artists, (laughs) it would have been great. But it was too scary for me. So I got that as as a nod that you might be okay with this. And to go back to your original question about how do you, how do you self-identify as an artist? The difference between how I feel as an actor and how I feel as a writer is as an actor, I recognize why people respond to what I do. I'm skilled. I'm, I, I'm good at it. I don't feel personally that I'm special at it. I feel like a journeyman. I feel like what I have to offer is solid. And I know that some people really love it, but I'm always like, well, you know, somebody else would be better at it, but I got lucky and got this job. I don't feel that way as a writer. When I sit down to write, I think nobody could tell this story as well as me. They could tell it from a different vantage point. They could do it in many, many different ways. But what I have to offer, I personally feel is special. And that hasn't faded. And so it's easy to identify as a writer if that's true. I I love that perspective because I think that all theater makers, I think that can be applied to all theater makers as, as great advice of just ownership. That's right. And just knowing that that confidence that that you can only present yourself. And it's different than saying what I do is good too. Yeah, like sure. I, 
I don't know that that's true because good is different to every person viewing or reading. But to me, my viewpoint feels special because it's my viewpoint. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way as an actor, oddly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think that one of the reasons my career as an actor has had some highs and lows is I definitely come at things from a different direction when I'm acting than a lot of other actors. I usually go with choice B right away which some directors like and some directors don't. So some directors like me more than others. Some audiences respond to me more than others. But usually if something comes out of my mouth, it's not the way you would think that line was the first, like the first choice. Um, I'm wondering how one helps the other for you. So how does playwriting help acting? And how does acting inform how you approach writing characters and writing uh, arcs? I I think that, I definitely think that uh, my dialogue is super actable because of my experience as an actor. Like I know how to read a line even internally and know and know how somebody will say it. They might say it differently than I think in my head, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is the thing I was just saying about coming at it from a different You're direction. A human pattern. But I have a but I yes, I have a very I have a very natural relationship to dialogue that comes from my relationship to it as an actor, I think. I would agree with that. Ah. <laughs> um, I from the from the submission that I read, yeah. I was telling Brian that I was able to just it was it felt very natural that it felt I could I could hear it was the like voices. You were hearing the voices and picturing exactly, what it was. and I but also the flow of it just felt. And I know that you had said earlier with, with the dashes, and I picked up on that too of how words aren't being finished. But it, so I yeah I, I'm curious as to how that is for you to write that and to think that in mind because well, I think one thing that separates me from other writers I just uh, a new play of mine is having a small production in Atlanta next month I'm going down to see it and I had I skyped with them last week and I was talking to them because they were asking me about my cutoffs a lot of writers today write they'll write a line of dialogue that has a cutoff but they'll put a slash in the middle of the line telling the actor who follows with the next line where they're going to interrupt I don't do that and a lot of directors I've worked with have said, could you please put slashes in so I can help orchestrate this? And I... And it's I, not your vocabulary. It's, it's, well, because I don't want to take away the freedom yeah. from another from an actor. Mm-hmm. And this is this is my acting tying into how to I write. To finish that line. Right. Or to know when to cut off because another actor might hear the incoming line differently than the actor after them. And I want to give them the freedom to cut off where they think it's the right time to cut off. But what I, what, I, what I always say to actors or directors working on my stuff, and I try to make sure this is clear in my notes at the beginning, if, if there's a dash, I inevitably, 100% of the time, mean two voices at the same time. It's up to you to decide how that happens. But it means that there's always a lot of dovetailing in my dialogue. And if there's a period, I mean you don't cut that person off. Like, you might butt up against it, but I try to treat it like you score music which doesn't separate me from a lot of writers, but I don't want to be too dictatorial about that. And I think that is because I started as an actor. But how does, if you're working on a play with a director or an actor that may not feel the same way as you with the punctuation, how do you guys deal with and hash out what the final product is going to be on stage? I'm, I think one thing, I do know that one thing that separates me from a lot of writers is I'm very open to many different interpretations. Yes. Um, a lot of writers have a movie in their mind and I don't. I do know when it's wrong and if I'm rehearsing something new, I have no problem saying that isn't it. You know, even with the submission, the first production, and I was with some really fancy people in that room, I every day put on my little big boy pants and would say, you know, what that actor is doing is terrific, but it's going to, it's going to, you know, three days from now, it's going to not work. And I think you should you know, I remember saying to the director about one very specific thing, like what's happening right now, I know feels very organic to them, but it's going to cause problems five scenes down the road. And if you let them get too used to that emotional response to that scene, you're not going to be able to unwire it because they're going to be used to what they're doing. And he was like, well, I don't, I don't generally like to disencourage actors from exploring something. I'm like, they can explore it all they want, but five days from now, I'm once again going to say, now they can't, you know, now now you're hurting the play because they're they're telling a different story. Oh, I forgot what I was answering. I've wandered away. Uh, do you, how do you um, move on if you oh. have a disagreement? Uh, I, I just very actors? rarely have a disagreement. Okay. Usually what I think when it's different from what I thought is it's awesome. Yeah. Usually I'm like, well, I never thought of that. That's so cool. Or like a lot of times, and Brian has worked with me, you know, if an actor will ask me a direct question about a thing, I don't like to answer it 
Like I usually yeah. say, I can tell you what my opinion yeah. is. Like uh, actors will ask. Yeah, no, I, re- like, I remember asking you a question. Like history things. Together. Like like uh, what do you think happened before? Why am I doing this? And I don't think it's my job to answer that because my opinion might be different than yours. I guess I'm just wondering, but so do you not do you not view that your characters have grown from you? And that by, no, by I, an extension that, that you would know some of those answers? Right, if, but if I might question, be wrong. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not living inside of it. Once mm-hmm. actor, you know, it's the oldest thing in the, it's the oldest story in the book. Like writing is an incredibly solitary act. It's very, very lonely and freeing, but very isolating. But each person and that black gets... And and white. Yes. Yeah. And each person that gets added to the process expands what the thing can be. Then a director joins and starts asking questions. And the play, particularly plays, starts to change because there's another voice in the room. Then designers join and they ask questions. It changes because other people are asking questions. And actors join and everything changes. Actors are always, always, 100% of the time, the magic sauce. Always. Because they immediately know more than you do. And any writer who isn't vulnerable to that is is protecting their ego. The actors, from the first time they say it out loud, know more than you. Now, they may ultimately choose a road that isn't, as I was saying, like isn't productive for what what you know the play wants, the story, what the play wants to do. But I often talk, when talking about writing in general, and my writing in specific, is your job as a creator of it. It's the old, the old adage of writing is rewriting, but it's true. That's why the first third of writing is always so horrible because you don't know what it is. It's like learning a new language. Writing a play or acting in a play, but particularly writing a play, is like learning a completely foreign language and you don't know it when you start. And you're in this new country and you don't know where you are and all you want to do is go to the bathroom, right? And so you're like finding people and trying to ask, where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? And they're like, they don't understand what you're saying because you're not speaking the same language and you really have to go. But about halfway through the play in the writing process, you've started to be able to speak the language and you can then like go to the bathroom. And then in the last fa- last part, you don't have to ask anybody anything. So if you have to go, you can go. You know, <laughs> so there's like these three. That's why the first part is so hard because you can get... Uh, now now my metaphor is going to get you, me in trouble. You, you, can be like, you, commit. you can be totally constipated in the first part because you can't go. But it becomes better and better as it goes along. Because you can speak the language. It's moving. And I think, yeah, literally. But I think <laughs> that writers who don't, who don't give in to that have a kind of ego about their writing. And I'm kind of egoless about it in a way. Like, again, I, I think what I have to do, what I have to offer is kind of special. But I often finish it. Most, I know a lot of writers who finish a draft and are like, this is awesome. This is the and, one. And I finish a draft and I'm like, well, that might suck. <laughs> but at least I think it's the start of the question that I want the questions that I want to ask. So you so you view your writing process as a collaboration. Always. So who would you who would you say if you're looking at like the like the creative team folding in actors and such, who is like the go-to person? The director. The director as yes. far as receiving feedback. The director. Okay. Oh, because you have to have somebody who is the focusing agent for that feedback. Yeah. And and there is a danger from I, th- you know, there's a danger in a rehearsal room for not knowing who's in charge. Actors as a whole, if it's hurting kittens, they get very, very afraid if they don't know who the mama cat is. The hierarchy. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there are directors who don't establish, and it's not even about authority, but it, but it is about leadership. The well, di- they're also, sorry, they're also looking at the show from like the beginning to the end. That's right. From all aspects. And... They're interpreting the writing now. Now, and actors are usually a little selfish. Well, actors are interpreting characters. the writing too, but they're interpreting yeah. the character, right? And the director is interpreting the Which entire is story to themselves and their character. And especially on new plays, once you start rehearsal, it's still it's still in flux. Yeah, it's not a thing yet. It's it's all clay, and you're making a statue. When you finish a draft of a play, it's the most exciting time because you're like, well, now I can really get to work. Because I've got 120 pages that is going to become something else. But at least now I know what it wants to be. It tells me. My job, if I'm doing my job right, is to listen to it. Not to try to tell it what to be, but to listen to it. Because always, again, 100% of the time, the play becomes something 
that I never thought it would be. When I finish, when I'm, when the play, by, by the time we get opening night, but even by the time I finish a draft that I've shown somebody, it is never what I thought it was going to be when I started. Ever. Yeah, I totally relate to that. I ended up writing, I think, a one act in grad school and had never written that, like anything yeah. like that before. And I so badly had this plan for this end of semester yeah. goal and I was forcing it and forcing it. And I was, and I got like, I think to spring break and I was like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Why? So that that's, you have to listen. To, yeah, you totally have to listen agree. to it. I mean, I yeah. think your job as a writer is to listen to the thing that's happening, and and help it become what character because it doesn't totally. kill your darling. Well, it's something that I told. Yeah, it's one of the hard things about writing for an actor or writing for somebody. I have tried to write roles for friends many times, and by the time the play is, if I've started, uh, if I start a piece of writing, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna. Here's a role that. I have a very, very, very close friend who is like a genius actor. He's one of the best actors I know. And I have like three times in my life tried to write him a role. And every time by the time the show, by the time I'm done writing, he doesn't fit in the play anymore because the play tells me. The play is like, oh, no, 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 it's not that. It's not that. Oh, okay. But I really want my friend to be in it. And, you know, beyond the fact that I would have no control over that anyway, because I would have no control over that, the play usually tells me something different. It's also why I don't, one of the reasons why I don't do table readings with my friends when a play is over. Because you don't want them to hold on to. Or also because it's just not helpful. It's not helpful for me anymore. Like, it's gratifying. Once you've written something, it's great to hear it out loud. You feel so special and so great because you're hearing the things you wrote out loud. Mm -hmm. But it, but... It doesn't. It's not particularly helpful for me because I know what my dialogue sounds like. I know how long a page will take. Like this play that's about to happen in Atlanta, they did the submission. That's how they began a relationship with me years ago. And I remember the director, who was the same director directing this new play, called me right before they went into tech. And he said, how long should this play be? Hmm. And I said, it should be somewhere between an hour 37 and an hour 41. An hour 36 is too short, I found in New York. That then, they were, then it was going too fast. And an hour 42 meant it was a really slow night. Mm-hmm. So I said, somewhere between 137 and 142 is the sweet spot. And he said, well, we're running about an hour 55, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to put an intermission in. And I said, first of all, you can't. Con- contractually, you can't. Like, <laughs> you know, because I, I, it happened to me once. Somebody put an intermission to that play, and, and I found out. going to see that play. No. no, no, no. But I did find out on the back end that a theater company put an intermission to that play, and wow. I had to add a clause to the contract. Sure where, I don't know where you would put one. Exactly. Yeah. Because it was running too long. Because it is, it's not 90 minutes. That play is, 90 is a great length because plays usually start eight minutes late. Sure. So so it's People still going to be an hour there. 40. They're sitting there for a while. So anything over 90 gets to be tough for audience members who want to get up. Not that there aren't like Circle Mirror Transformation, which is a fantastic play. It's about an hour 50, an hour 55. You know, that's how that play wants to be. Some people don't like that intermissionless form, but that's, that's how that play wants to be. Mm-hmm. But if I'm writing without an intermission, I aim for like 90 to 93. Um, so anyway, this director called me and he said, we're running like an hour 55 and I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to put an intermission. And I said, you can't. And he said, well, I don't know how to get it shorter. And I said, they're not talking fast enough. Mm. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. It, I read it so fast. Like I just, the dialogue just was like natural. And sometimes I'd go back and just reread it to make sure I was like catching it all. But well, he I, said he, and I remember him saying, well, there, it seems like they're talking fast. And I said, I said, I, I think I've misspoken. I don't mean. I said talking fast enough is the wrong thing. They're not listening fast enough, and they're definitely not cutting yeah. each other off. And he said, oh, he said, well, they cut off where your dashes are. I said, no, no, no. The dash is a, is an invitation to talk at the same time. They have to talk at the same time. Life sounds chaotic to me. That's how I hear the world. I hear people talking at the same time. That's what I want in my plays. So I try to, I've tried to hone language that makes that clear to somebody who isn't used to working on my work that I want people talking at the same time. I try to be clear about that. And if there's a period, it means they're not talking at the same time. Mm. And in my head, I know what that sounds like. And when people hit that, they know. And I often tell actors who are working on my stuff for the first time, we're used, we're trained to be polite as actors. We're trained to like, listen to the other person and give them their due and then respond in kind. That's not how life works. That's not what people do. What people do is talk and listen at the same time. That's what I want in my plays. And it's and it's difficult. 
I, I, it's, it's a high technical act in my, in my work. And I tell actors every time it's going to feel uncomfortable until it's happening. Because usually you don't start to listen as an actor until like long after you've memorized it. You're trying yeah. to just do. And I, and I say to everyone, I just said it to this group in Atlanta last week, you have to get off book quick, more quickly than you would another thing so that you can, so that you can train yourself to listen and talk at the same time because that's what we do in life. And once you do it, I promise my dialogue is going to feel easier than some other people's. You're going to feel like you're just talking to people because that's what I want. You said that you don't have any say in the casting process, but do you have a say in the direction process, picking your director for whatever you are writing? You have say. It's a collaboration. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, picking a director. There are a couple of directors, one of whom Brian and I have both worked with. He's developed a lot of my work. He's one of my favorite, favorite people to work on new things with. Because I was wondering, you know, you probably form a really good relationship with that person. They know how you're working and know... Not necessarily the world of your plays because you said that you don't have a constant uh, right with all of them, but just the way that you write and the way that you and how I work. develop things. I mean, yeah. I'm a big rewriter. I rewrite yeah. a lot. I like change, lots of colors. I change things all the time. And uh, the the person I'm talking about, his name is Wes Grantham. He's a fantastic director. Um, Wes is very used to uh, very used to. Well, he's very used to working on new work, but he's very used to working on my new work because we've developed like six, seven plays together. Wow. And he knows he knows to trust. He just read a draft of this new thing that seems pretty much on track to be produced by a big theater in, in like a year and a half. Before it was even done, the theater got interested in it, which is super exciting. Um, but he just read this new draft and, and, and we had a meeting about it and he was like, stop writing. Just stop. Because... I know I know what you're trying to do and we and we already have a workshop on the calendar for like 10 months from now and he said you're in good shape it's very clear what it wants to be wait because we're going to get in a room with actors and you're going to do all the stuff that anything I would ask you now you're going to do with those actors the play Brian and I did together wasn't wasn't true like he read the first draft and he said I, I see what you're trying to do I don't really understand it yet but I'm excited by the possibility of it keep going but that's because we trust each other enough to say that to each other. So that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of writers tend to work with the same directors all the time. Uh, Annie Baker works a lot with Sam Gold. Hallie Pfeiffer works a lot with Trip Coleman. Like they tend to try to work with the same people. Um, I work with Wes and I work with a woman named Jen Thompson. It's not that I'm averse to working with other people, but I also tend to work with the people that I think are best at their job. Then it becomes a conversation, like when you're trying to select a director for a work, if it's being produced in New York, the writer has right of refusal, has veto power over everything. You know, you can say no. Like, I don't want to cast that person. I don't want that person to direct my play. Is that just in New York? It's true for new work. Um, there's a boilerplate kind of contract, I think, mm-hmm. from the Dramatists Guild. And the writer always technically has that last say. Um, but I say technically. Like, you do have veto power, but like all powers... They with great power over, comes great yeah. responsibility. Like you have to use it judiciously or you can get yourself in trouble. So you can't say no to everything. So you have to pick and choose battles. Like you, you know, if, if, if a theater is dead set, if producers are dead set against something, then you're probably never going to win that fight. And you have to know when to pick up your toys and leave. And you also have to know when to stand firm. Like, um, like I lost that battle a couple of times on my first play and I learned a lot from it, you know, and there are battles I'm willing to lose and battles I'm not. And I know when's I, I've started to know when is the right time to really plant my feet and say, no, that's, that is not okay with me. So I have a question about your relationship with theater companies mm-hmm. um, in New York or regionally. So you apply, you submit your shows basically. I have an agent who does it, but yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, or they can come across it. Yeah organically yes, however, yeah, that, yeah. however that is so when you're in that conversation with the theater company or with the literary agent mm-hmm. whoever that may be how do you choose what theater is the right theater for you and i use right no no mostly. i mean i try to be uh uh with my f- I've, I've had a couple of agents as a writer and my first one which was a complicated relationship that i learned a lot from but that agent mm-hmm. tended to just send everything everywhere 
And my current agent is a, is a very thoughtful guy. His name's Ben Izo. He's fantastic. We have very similar aesthetics. We think about theater a lot in the same way. And he doesn't send everything everywhere. Like when I finish a draft, he's like, well, I think it's good for this theater, this theater, and this theater. Strategically. That's right. Yeah. Because if you keep, if you send a theater. It's less important each time. That's right. If they, they don't start to trust that you at least know what they produce. So if I'm sending plays places, I'll look at their season. Like if I'm submitting to uh, festivals of new plays, which is, that's not on an agent. That's usually me who's doing it. I look at their last couple of seasons and make sure that what they've done kind of lines up with what I do. The play that Brian and I did together at Montclair was called Civics and Humanities for Non-Majors. That my agent isn't really, I mean, he would send that out, but it's too big to be done in, in most theaters. It was written for 12. Yeah, it's a cast of 12, oh which goodness. is very hard to produce yeah. in most theaters because yeah. it's just too big. And that was the that was the directive from the beginning. I was commissioned to write it by the by the theater department who wanted something that was at least eleven actors. I chose twelve because that's the story I wanted to tell. My agent can't really send it out much, so I've taken it upon myself and I sent it in December. My writing goal that month was to send it to a bunch of universities, but I sent it to 130 universities over the course of three or four weeks. But I every university that I sent it to. I went to their website and made sure that they produce things that at least look like they live in the world of what I do. If they oh, do wow. only musicals or yeah. if they do like yeah. only comedies, you know, if they don't do contemporary drama, um, then this isn't the right play to send them. I, at that time, a great play to a lot of a lot of colleges are doing The Wolves by Sarah Delap, yes. which is a fantastic play. A lot play. of colleges are doing that. Play being on a season at a college was a great indicator that might be a great place to send this particular totally. play because Civics and Humanities has a lot of overlapping dialogue and complicated thematic ideas. Lots of listening. So yep. what what I think is so interesting about other people doing that play is that you wrote it to our strengths. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And but that's put a true. lot of personal. That's true um, of every personal play. things in there. But that's true of every play. Um, yeah. The first production of every play gets built on the actors who are doing it. And and every, every play. Wow. Yes. I mean I mean I think some writers are less are less open to that in the room, but you have to at some point recognize the thing I'm trying to force that actor to do is not organic to them. I'll, I have to. I have to adjust. Give now there are some things you have to stand at. firm on. There are there are story points that you can't change. You know, like this has to happen for the story to proceed. If that isn't within that actor's wheelhouse, sure. I can write around that to a certain extent, but not always. But civics and humanities was built very much on this group of twelve people, and and more so than others. I think it got really built to you guys as strengths we and personality. students. You were, we but also were the play was, as you'll recall, in its early drafts, like still very, uh, very. What it wanted to attack was was a formed was formed thought, or those questions were strong. But the way that I wanted to ask those questions was something I was still figuring out. I was still learning mm -hmm. to speak the language. Yeah. Um, other plays, by the time they get to a theater, I at least know what the language is. But it's always built on the backs of those actors. Like the first production of the submission, there are things in that play, in its published, produced form now, that came from those four actors because they were the first ones to do it. So in my mind... Their tendencies and stuff that's like right. that. That's right. I always picture those four people when, yeah. I, when I read that play because they're the people I built the town with. That's the, they were the first inhabitants of the town. What would you say is the biggest challenge of getting your piece from page to stage? The biggest challenge is, is, is what every artist has, like getting somebody to notice me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm lucky. I've had some advantages and people, I think some people know who I am, but it's getting anything noticed, getting noticed as an actor, getting any job is a miracle mm. because it's impossible. They're all impossible careers. They just are until they're not. <laughs> but like getting any job is a miracle. So, yeah. so the hardest part is all, all of it. I had, I, I've been in some early meetings with a producer who's looking at a play of mine for commercial production. Whether that will happen or not is in great question, but, but you know, these talks are ongoing and it's exciting. And I was asked like, what's your dream for this play? And, and do you get interviewed when they're going to take on a play of yours, a theater company? 
uh well this is an independent producer okay so um so it was kind of an interview but it, yeah but this producer is already um, yeah really loves the play and is really interested in trying to get it to an audience which is great but i was asked like what's your dream and and my answer was i'm a new york playwright i'm conditioned to dream for one thing a reading somewhere i hope somebody get to have a reading like i'm not like oh i hope it goes to Full broadway production. that's not what i'm conditioned to dream for and it and so all i ever dream for is like i just like to keep working on it because because if if that's where i set my goal then it makes every day um uh, 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 achievable even if it's being produced even if it's at you know manhattan theater club or playwrights horizons or any of the places i would love to have a play produced if my goal every day is to just keep working on it then then i'm just at work i'm just doing my thing and the stakes remain high only in so far as they affect me hmm. and and what i want the i my job every day is to make the thing that i'm working on the most awesome that i can that's the whole goal because the other things you can't control like i cannot control what the marketplace is looking for right now. I can't control that I'm a 54-year-old white dude telling stories about a lot of different kinds of people, but there is a there are different lenses that are being sought out now as they should be, and I can't control that that my lens may not be the particular lens that is being sought being actively sought out. It doesn't mean that people still don't notice what I do. But trying to match that, trying to meet that just using that as an example is a mistake because it means that I'm not writing what I want to yeah. write. The only way to be successful in any of the field, in any field you choose as an artist is the old be true to yourself thing. Like I have to sit down and write what I want to write every day. When I act, when I go into a room to audition, I have to bring into the room what I think it will be. If it's for them, fantastic. If it's not, it doesn't mean I failed. It means what they're doing doesn't match what I would want to do, and I wouldn't want to do it with them anyway. So as an actor, I try, and this isn't 100% of the time true, but it's true a lot of the time, I feel as much that I'm auditioning them as they're auditioning me. Because yeah. if they say things, I, if the director says things about that play that I don't agree with, then I have to decide if that's, how, if that's gonna like, work. do I want to do that? Yeah. Or is this going to be uncomfortable for all of us? And maybe I should not go to the callback if I'm if I'm invited to. Um, not that not that that happens that often, but I try to pay attention to that. Or at least or at least if I disagree with them and I get the job, I go in forearmed with the knowledge of well, you know, we'll find out. Yeah, that doesn't happen that often, to be honest. Like by the time you get a job, it's probably because you all agree on your approach or the story you're going to be telling. That's, and that's true as a writer, too. By the time we get to the rehearsal room, the director and I, whoever it is, agree on the story that we want to tell, and we're all trying to tell the same story. But you can see when you go to the theater, and it's very, very rare, you can see when everybody succeeded in telling the same story, from actor to writer to director to designers to production. And the ones that are very successful... Hamilton is very successful, not just because it's a terrific piece of writing, but because everybody was telling the same story. Fun Home was another great example of that. I think Dear Evan Hansen, the things that tend to be super successful are because everybody was doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's very rare because it's hard to do because people come in as artists with different points of view and sometimes they clash. The Band's Visit was a great example last year of, of, of a piece of theater where everybody was doing the same thing. Other things that seem less successful it isn't because they weren't trying to do the same thing, but it's just because they didn't get there. They didn't get across the finish line telling the same story yeah. or, or telling the same story in the same way. And it's, and it's rare because it's hard to do because artists all have their own opinions about what to do. How did uh, writing for music come into play in your life? I, I, I knew I always knew that I wanted to. And, uh, and I reached out to a young composer uh, named Will Van Dyke one day just out of the blue because I liked the stuff he had written and we got together and had very similar aesthetics and started writing a musical like the next day. Wow. And, uh, and we've now written over a hundred songs and we have four musicals and we write every day together. We talk on the phone every day. We're like, we're very simpatico as artists. We're of two different generations, which I think sometimes lends a really interesting yeah. tension to our work. Um, what's that process like, you know, when you sit like down a, to writing, writing a, song? a song? Yeah. 
music first, lyrics first. It depends on the ideas. song. Um, the further along we get in our... Re- well, this isn't always true. I was yeah. going to say, the further along we get in our relationship, it's often more lyric first. Um, but that isn't always true. Um, we've done a, we've done a lot of songs Do you where you come up with the melody or does he? Nope, I, I wow. never. Nope. the The music is all him. The lyrics is both of us, but it tends to be more on my plate than his plate. Um, and and you know, like if I turn over a song to him, sometimes sometimes I'll say if we're writing for a specific thing in a musical, like I'll give him a little scene and say. There's a song here. I don't quite know what it is. Sometimes I turn over a whole lyric to him that then he messes with, and then we go back and forth with to make once he's got a once he's got an idea of what it will be. We change the lyrics to fit that. Um, but sometimes I just say, I know that they are fighting right now. I know that he's mad at her. I know that I don't think it's a sad song. I know that um, it's not a ballad. I think it's a mid tempo. Like we have, you know, like I can lay out what I th- how I think it works within the scheme of the show. But whatever he does is always so magical and mysterious to me and is never what I think it was going to be when it was in my head. And I think yeah. that's true vice versa. Like what I come up with lyrically is never what he thought it was going to be. And, 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 it, and we work very well together. We also really like each other personally, which is helpful. Um, very invested in each other's personal success. I think that's helpful. He's very big fan of my plays. He's written music for uh, several of my plays when they were produced. Um, I find the process very undifferent from writing plays. Really? The the rules are different. Although our musicals, I think it's why we've yet to be produced. And I, I think one of the reasons we've yet to be produced is our musicals are a little different than other musicals. They're, they're book heavy um, because they're, they operate like plays with songs, but they might have 20 songs in them. But we tend to really weave in and out of dialogue and music um, uh, more than other musicals. Which is which is interesting because our songs are written in a in a pop vernacular, so people expect the dialogue to stop and somebody to sing a song. But in our musicals, those two things tend to happen at the same time and weave in and out of each other. That happens in a lot of musicals, but it's more true than not in our writing um, than I think in some other shows. So it, I think it makes it makes them a you know it just makes them complicated for people to take in because we're trying to do something slightly different just slightly different like we're not trying to reinvent the wheel but like every writing team our our musicals are ours i mean you know i'm very excited for the potential of a couple of of all all of them but you know musicals much more so than plays plays take forever and musicals take an infinity like it's just like it's forever to get somebody to notice a musical because they're very expensive to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) We aren't writing, we don't ever, we're not aiming for the commercial marketplace, but ultimately every musical ends up being looked at for the commercial marketplace. Mm-hmm. So, where, where would you say that you're aiming? I, not for profit. Like I, when I'm writing, yeah. I'm always like, well, this would be great at Playwrights Horizons, okay. or this would be great at Manhattan Theater Club, or this would be great at the Vineyard. You know, like that's the size of place that we tend to think about when we write. I think a lot of artists in New York do, a lot of writers do. But once those institutions get interested in a musical, they're usually looking what is the potential for it beyond us. Like, what is the potential? Is it is it potentially a Broadway show? Yeah. But Broadway is so, you know... It's just one thing. It is just one thing. and, and Not that it's one type of show. It's just one place to do a show. That's right. Well, I wanted to get your opinion, your thoughts on just the commercial aspect of Broadway and how you view that with off-Broadway and, and, and the art that's... Well, there... On the stage. There's two kinds of off-Broadway. There's the not-for-profit and the profit yep. model. And the for-profit model doesn't exist for broad, for musicals anymore because they're too expensive. There's a, I was just talking with a friend about it this week. There's this production of Fiddler on the Roof done entirely in Yiddish. That is it's at, a wonderful production. So phenomenal. I've been told. I've heard it's phenomenal. But it's being done at an off-Broadway theater. And it's big. You know, It's got like a 19-piece orchestra. Yeah. I don't know. Big cast. It's impossible for that to turn a profit. Like... I'm sure their hope is for it too, and they've tried to finance it so that it does turn a profit. But it's it's the marketplace isn't. There used to be a marketplace for profit for profit musicals off Broadway. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, because when you were just naming all those theaters, the first thing I think of is not musical. That's right. Uh, theater companies. That's right. Yeah. Um, so so off Broadway, you're usually looking at 
the Playwrights Horizons, you know, I keep using them as an example, but they're, you know, that's one of the premier places in town and they do do musicals. If they you're often... listening, Playwrights Horizons. Oh, hello. But they, here. Yes. Knock, knock. <laughs> but they often come in with some sort of commercial backing from, from a producer who is at least interested in helping to finance those shows because they're expensive and everybody hopes that they move on from that venue. As a writer, I just don't think that way. I probably would be more successful if I did, but it cramps my style in a way that isn't helpful for writing. Like I'd rather just say, well, I wish this was in front of 199 people. Hmm. And if it was, this is what it would look like and this is what it would sound like. And that's one of the reasons why I think the band's visit was very successful artistically. I think it had a ultimately kind of a complicated, even with 12 Tonys, a complicated journey in the commercial market making money. But it, but that didn't seem to me like they were aiming for 999 or 1499 seats. They were always writing a very small story and they very successfully mounted it on a Broadway stage. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And that, and that, because yeah. I, I kind of wish I had seen it at the, you like, need a black that's box, right. right. I wish I had, because that's what it seems like there, it wanted so to be. So many shows that start yeah. such smaller houses. And it's like, you wish you were there to witness it with a crowd that intimately. Right, because the commercial theater, the Broadway commercial theater, you is largely the, like the space. I think in, totally. in Broadway houses, some like some things just don't work. Yeah, and it's dominated now by by a kind of writing that is largely the jukebox musical or or the epic things that the the, mo- the movies, the movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the movies being turned into musicals, and that and that's about name recognition, and then they hire by and large writers especially those movie studios that are turning musicals into mu- movies into musicals they they take chances on already established pop writers mm. who don't know who are learning how to write in the musical theater vernacular waters. and some of them are more successful at it than others so sarah Bareilles is fantastic at it waitress is a fantastic piece of writing you know others are less or more successful based on who they hired to turn that movie into a musical and i honestly don't know if that's a paradigm to make good art i i think that i think the best art comes when it's when it's driven by a creator who is passionate to tell the story not by yeah outside sources who hired people to write that story because it comes from a personal place because that's a story somebody's dying to tell it doesn't mean that it can't be successful there are countless stories of producers like hiring writers to write things that turn out to be really great musicals but our current crop of things doesn't, I think, advertise the quality of that paradigm personally in every case. Yeah. But everybody, the other thing is, even if you see something you don't like and it's a really great thing to remember, nobody's trying to make things that suck. Everybody's trying to make things that are awesome. Even things that turn out <laughs> sucking. That's so true. People were trying to make something yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. They just were. They weren't trying to like make it bad. <laughs> There's a really great book. I there there are many things that I there well, I mean there are probably like five things I suggest every maker to read. Like Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, if you want to write, is the book everybody should read. I think all actors should read it. It's a great book about the creative process. But there's a great book written by uh uh I think his name is Glenn Berger, the guy who wrote Song of uh, who wrote Spider Man, the musical. Oh. And he wrote a book called Song of Spider Man. Oh yes, yes, yes. That is yeah. about that process. I started reading that. And book. It's a phenomenal book. It's in my Amazon shopping cart. You should I know. get it tomorrow. <laughs> or go to your public library. Or go to your public library. Right. That's right. Or go to public library. I know you do. <laughs> but it's a great book because you want to read it because that show was a very famous flop, right? Yeah. Because it was too expensive and it didn't work. So you start that book thinking, I'm going to get the dish. And it's in there, but it's a very sincere piece of writing from the guy who was writing it about how they were trying to make something great. Mm. And I found the book really moving because it reminded me that that, that in, insane musical, because that musical was insane. I, I did w- see it. Was written by people who were trying to make something amazing because they were. And if it didn't work, well, that's just how it goes. I often, if I'm seeing something, would prefer to see something that is... A crazy swing and a miss Old. than something that is like just kind of okay. 
trying or to mediocre. do what everything else is doing. That's right. Yeah. I would much rather see a failure that isn't boring than something that is just like, yeah, well, that's every other play. That's every yeah. other musical. Because at least the people who made the thing that's a crazy failure were trying to do something. But they also did it. Like, they did yeah. the thing. Even if it didn't, even if the end result wasn't what they had hoped for, they right. still, they got it up. They got it up on a stage. Yep. yep. In front of an audience. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know. And we're trying to <laughs> seek out other people to appreciate what they did. If it doesn't work, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But it very rarely completely does. It's very rare that everybody loves something. You know, not everybody eats at the same restaurant. You know, and if you write... If you write and you're and you're not making food that everybody wants to eat, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who want to eat that food. You just have to find the people that want to eat at your restaurant. We're asking all of our guests as the last question. Ooh. What was the last? And it really it really ties into what we were just saying. Yeah. What was the last great piece of theater that you saw? Oh, oh. Well, that's an easy. Doesn't have to be the last. No, thing. no. That's yeah. easy. Yeah. That, that's easy because it's the thing I think everybody. I think I have a feeling. What do you think I'm going to say? I think you're going to say what the Constitution yep. means to me. Yep. Yeah. Everybody should see it. It should be required viewing for every American, first of all. <laughs> but it's also a, an incredibly exciting piece of theater. I saw it first two years ago in a 70-seat theater. That's where it started, in New York. Talk She's been working intimate. on it for many, many years. But I saw it at a 70-seat And 70 it's not a pretty intimate space It is. On Broadway. But it's still Broadway, It's right? still Broadway. So we saw it like on a, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It was part of a festival at, at a theater called Clubbed Thumb. And, and it was part of their summer short series or whatever. And I remember wandering out onto the street feeling like I had been like taken by the lapels and shaken. And you, at that point, there were like five performances and we saw the next to last one. You couldn't get a ticket to it. And I was like, this is, this is the most important piece of theater I've seen in years. That it's very gratifying that it has ended up on Broadway because it isn't typical in any way. It, have you both seen it? I haven't seen it yet. No, but I haven't. It's on my list. <laughs> it's You have to see it because it, it challenges what a play is because it starts as a monologue, but it isn't really a monologue, but it and kind of is. it's a one-person play? It isn't, but it feels oh. like it at first. Okay. Um, uh, see, I'm going in blind. Yeah, and you should. And I would, but it's I'm also an to. incredibly political piece of theater, but Which not I in love. the way that you think that it's going to be. It isn't... Uh, it, is it, it more educational? No. Oh. No, it's very personal. Like it starts off and you think it's going to be educational and you think you're going to live like I, I know people who have been dismissive of it and they are few, but I they call it a TED talk. Well, it's just a TED talk. And I love TED talks. Absolutely. But they don't always make good theater. But this isn't a TED talk. It's a dynamic, personal piece of writing by a, a, a female human being in the world trying to understand how in particular female human beings interact with the way we've decided to govern ourselves in this country. And she continually ties it back to herself and what she's trying to investigate. And it challenges all the norms of what a play is. It constantly is setting up, from a writing standpoint, the rules of what it is and then breaking that in front of you. Like, not just the fourth wall, but how the play is being presented changes two or three times within the evening. And it's deeply funny. More so than you think, because it sounds serious and stodgy and school-like. It's not. It's very, very funny and incredibly moving. And that's partly because she followed her own muse the entire way. Like, she never deterred from telling the, the story she wanted to tell she in waited. the way she wanted to tell it. Yeah. Yeah. So that that that's an easy answer. There are other things that are great in town, but that's the thing. Well, I like, think you just sold two tickets. Awesome. <laughs> You're welcome, Heidi. Dear <laughs> Heidi Shrek, you're welcome. Two percent to me. Listening. She definitely She's is. She's definitely listening. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll have we'll have to have her on. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. She's next. Yes. Well, thanks Thank so you. much thanks, for coming guys. on here. I loved this conversation. Excellent. I also learned so much more. I just my brain is just like <laughs> Yeah. Amazing. Thanks. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Have you ever 
wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.